7, 1 through 10. You remember we've been going through the book of Hebrews, talking about how Jesus is a superior spiritual being. He's more superior than Moses. And now we're looking at he has a superior priesthood. Hear the scripture. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest, of, a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Those, these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that uh, Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The word of the Lord. Well, the presidential campaign is well underway. I don't know if you've been tracking it, but 2012 is a presidential year. And so what happens first is the, uh, because Barack Obama is a Democrat, the Republican primary. And the candidates are lining up to try to present their platforms and distinguish themselves from the crowd for the, plat uh, for the election, which is February 28th. There's been some interesting news uh, about political candidates this week. Uh, Rick Perry, uh, the governor from Texas, former governor, I can't even remember, came out and said that uh, Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. And oh my gosh, you know, everybody went off, you know, blah, 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 blah. But it made a lot of news. So Rick Perry's staking his ground on Social Security. Michelle Bachman said that if she was elected president, the days of $2 a gallon gas would come back again. I like that. <laughs> Good job, Michelle. Newt Gingrich, when asked how is he going to deal with the deficit, said, I think what we have to do is sell Alaska for $1 trillion. Kind of tongue-in-cheek. He was saying, since we're not going to develop the oil reserves, we might as well sell it and get a trillion dollars and take care of the deficit. Well, whatever the case, you know, it is interesting of this whole political process. And in some ways, I get excited about it. And in some ways, I get disillusioned about it. Because these folks are going to be, and in the entire political process, you know, people from around the world come to study our political process. But it's easy to become disenfranchised with it with would-be politicians that come to stand in the gap, if you will, to represent us to the country, who make promises, but don't keep them. I don't know if you saw this recent news, it was this week, this 31-year-old rogue trader from UBS Securities built the company for $2.1 billion. Here was this trader who was appointed to represent his clients and to represent the company, and he did neither, and instead has brought this company to the bridge of destruction. Well, it's easy to become disillusioned, and that's why I was so happy when I saw this article in the paper. It was in uh, the Virginian Pilot, 
What day was this? This was on the 14th, so a couple days ago. Quick thinking helpers lift 4,000 pound car to free motorcyclists from fiery wreck. Okay, this was out in Salt Lake City, very close to the university there, I forget which one it was. And uh, this motorcycle had ran into this BMW and slid underneath it. And this guy got pinned underneath this BMW and it burst into flames. Well, they were really close to the university, so all these like 12 university students who were just standing around went into action. And they went over and this, this car is burning and this guy is underneath the car. And they, and they managed to find a way to lift the car and to pull this guy to safety. And basically what the police are saying is if those people hadn't been there, this guy would have died. Here's a group of people that saw a situation and decided we're going to stand in the gap. On one side, this man who is trapped by this car and on the other side, the flames. And without thinking, they came and they stood in the gap, one between the two. And I think the reason that I'm sharing all these things is we understand this concept about people standing in the gap for us, don't we? Whether it's a politician, whether it's a legal situation where we need representation, and what about in our situation with God? See, one of the things I don't have to convince a lot of people about is that we intuitively understand that there is a gap between us and God. God who is altogether holy, altogether unspoiled, altogether beautiful, and us who are unrighteous, who make mistakes, who do the wrong things. And the question that we have is, who is going to stand in the gap between us? One between the two. That's the question that this very passage is dealing with. See, this passage, this letter to the Hebrews was written to a small church in a cosmopolitan city, much like ours, and these people are struggling with the question, did we pick the right person? See, they came to Christ, they believed in His promises, and they said, here's the one, the one to represent us to God. But things are getting difficult. And they're asking the question, did we pick the right person? We see here that this is the letter to the Hebrews. And so some of these folks were obviously Hebrew Christians and familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. And they were wondering if maybe that what they needed to go back to was this law of Moses, that that was really the way to find someone to stand in the gap between us and God. Well, the writer is telling us, no, no, no. You have picked the right priest, the one to stand between the two, because he is the superior priest, the one who can only be and the only one who can effectively bridge the gap between God and man. And in this, in this passage, he makes three, uh, three arguments why Jesus is the superior priest. Number one, he's the kingly priest. He's not only priest, but king. Number two, he's the eternal priest. The priest who is forever. And then finally, number three, he is the preeminent priest. So what we're going to talk about are these three things. Because the reality is if Jesus is the preeminent priest then he must have our preeminent trust if we want him to represent us to God. Well, let's, let's break this down. Let's look at this first part. He is the king priest. This writer right away tells us that Jesus is not from the line of Aaron. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, well, who is this guy Melchizedek? Kind of a shadowy figure in the Old Testament. In fact, he only shows up twice. Once in an interaction with Abraham, and once in a psalm, Psalm 110, that David is referring to. 
And we see that he is called a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. Well, there's a problem with that because Melchizedek was not from the line of Aaron, the line of Levi, the Levitical priesthood that was established in the time of Moses. So we got to figure this thing out. Let's back it up a little bit. This first passage deals in Genesis. Um, uh, in this situation, there was a king. His name was Kerloamer. And this king, Kerloamer, this is in the time of Abraham, um, comes down and he sacks with other kings the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he takes, he plunders these cities and he takes the treasure and he takes people from these cities, including Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his family. And he carries them off. And Abraham says, I've got to do something about this. And so he musters all of the fighting men within his family and his servants, 318 of them. And they set, after, set out after King Kerlomer. And they capture, and they fight him, and they manage to defeat him, and they gather the goods, and including Lot and these families, and they bring them back away from King Kerlomer. Well, we see here that Melchizedek comes out to meet them. And he is called priest of the Most High God. In fact, this is the first time priest is ever mentioned in the Old Testament and won't be mentioned again for another 700 years. And we see here that he is called King of Righteousness. Melchizedek, Melech Zedek, King of Righteousness. And he's also called King of, Salem, King of Peace, King of Salem, which is Shalom in, in Hebrew. It turns out he's actually the King of Jerusalem. Jeru Shalom. It was originally called Salem. This is the king of Jerusalem. And he blesses him. Well, what's the problem with this? He's a king, a king of a city, and kings can't be priests. Priests are from the Levitical line. And the kings of Israel and Judah, Judah usually came from the line of, uh, of Benjamin, or they came from the line of Judah. They didn't come. In fact, if you'll remember in 1 Samuel that King Saul, remember Israel's first king? He goes ahead and has this huge battle and he has to make sacrifices and he's waiting for Samuel, the priest, to come to make sacrifices. And everybody's getting antsy. And so Saul decides to go ahead and make these sacrifices because Samuel doesn't come around. And Samuel condemns him and says, your, your kingship will be torn away from you. Because you try to be a priest, and you're not a priest. And yet we see that this king here is in, the, this priest is in the order of Melchizedek. Well, why is this so important? Why am I belaboring this point? The point I'm trying to make is this. The Israelites came to believe that there would really be two messiahs who would come. One, a spiritual messiah to help the spiritual uh, decay in the country, and then a physical Messiah, one who would defeat their enemies. The reality is we need both. Because for 1,400 years, the priest who had come to allay God's wrath was not strong enough to solve the problem. He could only delay God's wrath. He could not destroy the barrier between God and man. Think about it. Once a year, that priest would go into the Holy of Holies, offer sacrifices, and leave. 1,400 years, year after year. But would anyone else go in? Nobody else. And in that place, this Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and there was an altar for the bread, 
But you know one piece of furniture that was missing in the Holy Holy of Holies? A chair. No chair. No place to sit down and be at peace with God. Always wondering if God was going to wipe you out. Because the reality is there can be no peace between us and God until an enemy is conquered. And that enemy is sin and death. See, we need more than a priest to stand between us and God. We need a king who can conquer our enemies. Sin and death and Satan. Think about it. The very problems that separate you and me from God, what are they? The first is righteousness. God is righteous and we are not. But this Melchizedek is called the king of righteousness. We need a king of righteousness. Think about the second problem, that we have a problem. We have no shalom with God, do we? No standing before Him. No place to sit at His feet. Very interesting when I, uh, my kids do something wrong and they come to, my, to see me, they won't look into my eyes. They'll come and they'll kind of stare down and they'll talk and, you know, I have to kind of bend down and get their head to look into my eyes. Why? Because there's shame there. But this one in the order of Melchizedek is the king of Shalom, the one who can bring peace. See, we don't need a priest who can only take us halfway or nearly all the way. We need a priest who can take us all the way into the throne room of God where we can look at God with eyes of peace. I don't know if you saw this interesting story. It was on September 9, 2011, a couple days ago on CNN. U.S. swimmer abandons a 103-mile attempt to swim from Cuba to Florida. 61-year-old woman had this dream to swim from Cuba to Florida, 103 miles. She'd actually tried it when she was 28 years old and failed. And she thought this was her day. I saw her interview. It was really exciting. She was excited about it. It's going to take about 60 hours to do it. And she wanted to be the first person to ever do it, not swimming in a shark cage. Now, how one swims in a shark cage, I don't have any idea. Sounds kind of cramped to me personally. But they had these electrical fields going out that would allow, you know, keep the sharks away so that she could swim. Well, 29 hours into the swim, her body started cramping up. Shoulders started hurting. She started throwing up. She had asthma. And she finally had to stop before she reached Key West. See, she had all the intentions in the world of making it from one place to the other. She trained. She worked as hard as she could. The conditions were great, but she simply didn't have it in her that day. The reality is the priests of the Levitical system and the priests that we put our confidence in every day do not have what it takes to make that journey from earth to heaven. Only the king priest Jesus Christ. See, when I need someone representing me before God, I need someone who can succeed. I need someone who can not only delay wrath, but destroy it altogether. So my question for you is, what are you counting on to bridge the gap between you and God? Are you trying to swim your own way across? I can be my own priest. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to show up at the office. I'm going to show up early and I'm going to stay late. I'm going to volunteer for the tough assignments. Or if you're a homemaker, I'm going to be the best mom or dad that I possibly can be. I'm going to make the lunches and I'm going to do the doctor's appointments and I'm going to show up to the PTA meetings. I'm going to make it across 
based on my efforts. But they can't produce righteousness. Because you're not the king of righteousness. And they can't produce shalom. Because you are not the king of shalom. And so you and I must look to the king priest, trusting in what he has done, leaning on his righteousness, not manufacturing your own. When you feel like you're falling short, guess what? You are. But Christ swam all the way from one end to the other. Since Jesus is the preeminent priest, we must, he must have our preeminent trust if we want him to represent us to God. Well, he is the king priest, but I want to move into my second point. He is also the eternal priest. See, he's unique. He's, like, he's unlike any other priest that has ever been. Look at verse 3 when he talks about it being in the order of Melchizedek. Without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, he continues to be a priest forever. Now this is describing Melchizedek, and we have to ask the question as we hear this description, is Melchizedek immortal? Is he like God? The answer is no. But there is no description of Melchizedek in the Bible. And the writer is bringing that out because what we need to understand is regarding the priesthood, genealogy was everything. Notice how in the Old Testament they're obsessed with genealogy, particularly in Genesis. Now, he was the son of this person, who was the son of this person, who was the son, and so forth. We don't see that anywhere with Melchizedek. Because the priesthood in the Old Testament was inherited. It wasn't appointed. Aaron was appointed, and everyone after that inherited. It passed from priest to priest. One would go old and die, another would come. The line of Levi would continue for 1,500 years again and again and again. If you applied to be a priest in Old Testament Israel, you know the first thing they would ask you for? Birth certificate. Show me your pedigree. Show me where you came from, because that's what qualifies you to be a priest. But Melchizedek has no uh, pedigree in that sense of the word, and Jesus doesn't either, because Jesus was appointed, not inherited. Listen to Psalm 110.4, where David, in the second part of the Old Testament, in speaking of the Messiah, said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now why will the Lord not change his mind? Because he doesn't have to. Because here is a priesthood that lasts forever. We have a changeover when one grows old and you need a new one, right? When your car wears out, what do you do? You go buy another one. When your shoes wear out, what do you do? But the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And we see here that the Lord has sworn. Very rare when God swears. Because God doesn't lie. Why does God have to swear? He doesn't swear for himself. He swears so that we will know that this one who has been instituted as priest is priest forever. As a result, we have a priest who is from first to last able to do what we need. I was recently reading about the miracles of life. We had this uh, thing I was reading on it. You know, one of the greatest miracles that I've ever experienced in life is seeing my children born. I don't know if you have had uh, opportunity to witness this. Some of you have had the opportunity to participate in it. 
But it is unbelievable, okay? It's like alien or something. It's so unbelievable what you see when a baby is born. You know, even the concept of being able to carry a baby is unbelievable because the baby actually has different genetic material than the mother, right? Because the baby carries the genes from the father and the mother. So this baby may have a different blood type, different brain waves, different genetic makeup, an entirely alien life growing in somebody else. Well, the question is, why doesn't the body attack this, this baby and kill it? The answer is the placenta. This miracle of God, this placenta that surrounds the baby functions as an immunological barrier between the mother and the fetus, creating what they call an immunologically privileged site. For this purpose, it uses several mechanisms. Maybe you're familiar with these. Uh, it secretes neurokinin B containing phosphocholine molecules, obviously. Although, also, there is a presence of small lymphocytic suppressor cells in the fetus that inhibit material psychotoxic T cells by inhibiting the response to interleukin-2. I knew that. The placental trophoblast cells do not express the classical MH class 1 isotopes, unlike most other cells in the body, obviously. Still, this is what's amazing, the placenta does not allow maternal Ig antibodies to pass uh, does allow maternal mother antibodies to pass from uh, uh, through the fetus to protect it against infection. A miracle of life. How did God do this? The point I want to make, though, is that this barrier, this placenta, which allows this person to grow, is temporary. The baby is born. The placenta is passed. And now that baby must survive on its own or die. And that separation between mother and child, it's a new stage of life. See, it was a safe place for a while, but the child must leave. The goal was to expulse the child. This Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of the Levites, was put in place to delay destruction for a while. But it was never meant to last forever. Because there was a new priesthood that was coming. A priesthood in the order of Melchizedek that would last forever to provide a way that God could deal with man in the intimacy of a mother and a child in the womb. The placenta, the priest, is Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can bring man and woman close to God. See, for many of us, the sum of our spiritual experiences coming to church on a Sunday and maybe hoping to have some sort of grasp from a distance of God, to see Him, maybe to experience Him for just a taste or a little bit, and then to go on to our regular life. But you see, in Jesus Christ, He comes to bring us right there up to the face of God in Himself, and ultimately to be in His presence forever. He can ward off punishment forever. So I have another question for you. What are you relying on that can last for you? The test of birth for us is death. 
What can ward off the punishment of death? Jesus Christ is the eternal priest for eternal life because he is the resurrected priest. The one who has shown us the way from death to life. In which we follow if we trust and obey in him. And so we don't need another priest. We don't need more priests. We only need one. Since Jesus is the preeminent priest, he must have our preeminent trust if we want him to represent us to God. Well, we've talked about the fact that he's the kingly priest. We've talked about the fact that he's the eternal priest, the final, final one. He is the preeminent priest. How do we know that? Well, look at how he interacted with Abraham. Verses 4 and 5. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Those of these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham. Okay, the priest was the one who had received the tithe, the 10% from the people of Israel. And he would apply that tithe for the sacrifices in the temple. The people would give the money for their sins. The priest would sacrifice and all would be well. But we see here that Abraham, who was the father of Jacob, of Isaac, and Jacob, who gave birth to all of the 12 patriarchs of Israel, Levi, one included, is the one who gave the tithe 700 years before to Melchizedek. He goes so far, the writer of Hebrews, to say that one may say that Levi himself, who was in the loins of Abraham, paid this 10%. In other words, Levi recognized who was the priest of all priests. The priest in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus. So we see that Abraham gives the tenth, but he also, uh, Melchizedek, blesses Abraham. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Remember the word blessed, barak, meaning to bend the knee. That it was Melchizedek that bended the knee and blessed Abraham, not the way the other way around. Now keep in mind, as the Hebrews are reading all of this, and they're understanding as Hebrew Christians, what he's saying is that Jesus is so far above the Old Testament priestly system. He's superior to it because he is eternal, because he is the king. I remember as a, as a college student, I was a walk-on at the University of Virginia and played tennis there. And I uh, ate and I lived and I breathed tennis. Tennis, tennis, tennis. I love playing tennis. And I idolized the, uh, you know, the great tennis players of the day. Well, there was one summer I was living in Charlottesville and there was this exhibition tournament. And along, who came to play the exhibition tournament but Stan Smith. Okay, remember Stan Smith? Okay, some of you may still be wearing his tennis shoes. You know, those snazzy white tennis shoes with green, the Stan Smiths. Well, he was a little bit before my time. He won Wimbledon in like 72, but he was still the man. Okay, Stan Smith. And so I was out there and I was helping to, you know, just, it was a benefit for his school. Well, my friend who uh, was the fundraiser for the school came over to me afterwards and he said, listen, I got a guy to fly Stan Smith to Philadelphia because he's in a tournament tonight. Do you want to come? And I said, yes. So I got in a private plane with Stan Smith hanging out 
talking tennis. This was unbelievable. Now, I was a decent tennis player, but compared to Stan Smith, I was nothing. And so I didn't spend a lot of time talking to Stan Smith about myself. I spent a lot of time asking Stan Smith questions because he was the one that had all of the answers. And he would give me tips and so forth, and it was great, and we had a wonderful time, and we finally landed, he needed to get to a tournament, and he just gave me a good pep talk, hey, keep it up, keep working, keep, and I gave Stan Smith no pep talk, <laughs> because he didn't need one from me, did he? He's Stan Smith, but I needed one from him. It is not without question that the superior blesses the inferior, and that's what we're seeing here. Now let me ask you the question, if you had to play a tennis tournament, uh, a doubles match, and your life depended on it, who would you choose? Well, Stan's pretty old now, <laughs> but you probably still choose Stan Smith, because Stan Smith has proven his worth. See, Abraham recognized who Melchizedek was, and in the same way, we must recognize Jesus Christ, who has proven his worth by his resurrection from the dead. We must recognize his superiority, his power. He was sent by God. Listen to what Hebrews said. He has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of a power of an indestructible life. So by his power alone, he should be our priest. But the second thing that teaches me and shows me why he should be my priest is on the basis of his love. Because for you and me, the king of righteousness became unrighteous, didn't he? Going to the cross, taking on our sin, being despised by man and God alike, he paid for our sins. He should become your and my priest because he is the king of peace. And in order to give me peace, he felt the unrest of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And his sweat became like drops of blood as he prayed earnestly. You see, he who came from the Father left his Father, left his position. There's a Welsh proverb that says, he who would be a leader must be a bridge. When we were trapped underneath the car and it was burning, Christ stepped into the gap, one between the two, one life for another, that we might have eternal life in Him. And so I finish by calling the question, all of us have priests, people to stand between us and God. So my question is, what priest is going to get up on a cross and die for you? What priest is going to go into a cave and rise three days later? What priest has a priesthood that is eternal from beginning to end by the very oath of God? There is only one. His name is Jesus. And since Jesus is the preeminent priest, he must have our preeminent trust if we want him to represent us to God. And by his grace, we will. Let us pray.